Welcome to the CTO studio. Today, I talk to Jonathan LaCour, CTO of Mission, a managed cloud consulting service. They're based here in Los Angeles. We're in Los Angeles today. We have an incredible conversation about all issues relating to cloud, cloud migration, and we talk about owning your own data. So listen. I have a wonderful electronic invention I want you to see. It looks something like this. Welcome to the CTO Studio. I'm your host, Etienne de Bruin. The CTO Studio is where we chat with CTOs building amazing products with incredible teams. Have you chatted with a CTO lately? Jonathan. Good morning. <laughs> Welcome to the CTO Studio. Thank you. This is our roadshow. In other words, the very first time we've moved. And, and since I'm, you know, first, does this make me like a, an opening act or am I the headliner? That's really what I want to know. I'm going to say you're <laughs> the alpha release. There we go. There we go. That works. And also because we're batching these interviews, which is a little secret, um, you may not be the first episode oh, from okay. this session. We'll see. I'm going to try to be real strong and we'll yes, see how it yes. goes. Because the, the, <laughs> the stronger you are, the more, the later you'll be in That's there. Right. That's right. So we're at Mission. Yeah. So uh, I got to know Mission when you were Reliam and uh, I had a fantastic time sort of negotiating with Mission to help us sponsor our 0111 CTO conference. That's right. And that's where I got to meet you and you gave a talk which prompted me to go and rewrite some code I had written nice. just that week before. See, that's, that, that fills me with joy because anytime I can inspire somebody to write code, especially somebody who should be writing code on a regular basis. Yes, <laughs> yes. I have been coding since I was at the tender age of 13. Yeah, me too. Yeah. My dad was worried that I was coding too much, and so he bought me video games. Oh my gosh, that's funny. So he That's was really like, can funny. you just chill out and stop writing this accounting package <laughs> and just play Pac-Man? So he fun. bought me O'Reilly's Mine and Dig Dug. And, uh, well, that, that's surely going to enrapture you, right? <laughs> Dig Dug. The good news was that it took those cassettes so long to load the games that I just ended yeah. up coding in between <laughs> game sessions. There you go. So uh, we're, we're at the mis- at Mission, right? Yes. And, um, Jonathan has made this, this studio available to us. Eric and I have set this up, and so we're going to spend the day recording here. Thank you very much, Mission. Of course. And uh, uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to dig in a little bit as to sort of what Mission does and how you became CTO sure. at Mission. I know sort of thinking back fondly of DreamHost. That's right. Uh, that was the first thing that caught my eye was that you were, were you CTO at DreamHost? I was, uh, I was a senior vice president at DreamHost. They didn't really have a C-suite so much. So, <laughs> you know, basically, yes. <laughs> Back in those days, though, CTO was sort of a novelty, right? I mean, it yeah, wasn't really so. a well-defined officer. Yeah, well, you know, and, and DreamHost is one of those, it's a very quirky place, right? So honestly, I'm surprised we didn't just invent some sort of crazy title. Right. For, I mean, it was a pretty crazy title. So tell but. me, uh, so tell me about your, your, your journey to, to sort of getting to where you are today. Okay. Well, I'll give you, I'll give you kind of the shortened background history on me a little bit. And similar to you, right? I got, I got into computing really, really young. Um, my, my father is actually a, a Presbyterian minister. Um, which exactly that's the reaction that you should have. Uh, but he was also an engineer and he went to Georgia Tech. 
um, which I eventually did as well. And he worked on the space program uh, and the cooperative program. So he he's always been a technical guy. Uh, and in the early days of my childhood, he would bring home his computer that he had at his office. And by bring home his portable computer, it was a Mac Plus, you know, the one with the little handle on it. Um, so that's where I started to code actually was on a little Mac plus, uh, and started off with just like hypercard and then, you know, Pascal and, uh, eventually C and, and, and other things. Um, so what, so what city is this? This was, I was growing up in Miami, Florida. Okay. 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 So, um, yeah. And, and I, so I got into computing way back then and have been kind of into computing ever since I started writing code professionally in high school. Um, and kind of, um, through a, a, a girl I was dating, uh, started working at a enterprise, um, healthcare business. So I mm-hmm. ended up learning Python back in the like 1.4, uh, era Ooh. of Python. So I've been using Python for ever. Um, and yeah, I kind of came up doing that and we did a lot of Java back then as well, because that was supposed to be the thing. Um, and then, you know, we kind of threw most of that away and went back to Python, uh, and, you know, went through a couple acquisitions with them, um, got bought by an enterprise document management business. So I got, you know, heavy into enterprise in the early days. Um, and then I, I decided I really wanted to kind of make a hard, hard right and kind of turn, um, towards doing a startup. Uh, ended up doing a business with my family, my sister and my brother-in-law, and we did kind of a SaaS application in the photography space. Was that Shoot Q? Shoot Q, and they're still around. Um, we we kind of did it from scratch, bootstrapped. Um, my my brother-in-law had written some software for himself to run his own photography business, um, very poorly. Um, impressive. Impressive that he did it, right? He's a, an amazing photographer. And now he's actually quite a capable programmer. But back then he was like, hey, can you help me? I was like, here's a book, right? PHP and MySQL, right? Figured out. Um, and he did. Um, and in very novel and interesting ways, he he wrote the software that was pretty cool. Um, and I came in and was like, hey, look, this could be a product, but we need to redo it, right? In a way that we can actually make it multi-tenant and run it as a SaaS application in the cloud. Um, this is like early, early days of cloud. So um, we, we built out this kind of cloud native app and, uh, shoot and we, we grew it, became kind of like an industry standard, um, and sold it to a company out here in LA. Uh, and that's how I met Simon Anderson, who is the CEO of mission. He actually was the CMO at the company that bought us. And then, um, you know, Simon and I have been working together ever since he, mm. uh, he went off and became CEO at DreamHost. Um, I picked up my family. We moved from Atlanta where we were living at the time and came out to LA to join DreamHost. I had uh, five different titles in seven years there. Um, so kind of did a lot of different things, um, including building out cloud infrastructure, um, running product uh, and engineering management, all that good stuff. And then um, when Simon headed off to, uh, he became a, an entrepreneur in residence at, at a private equity firm called Great Hill Partners out of Boston. And I worked with him on a thesis um, for the managed cloud space. And that's how we ended up at Mission. So I, I basically ran the due diligence process from a technical perspective with the private equity firm and with Simon. And we identified this company here in LA called Relium, really sharp group, um, ended up acquiring them. And then I came in as CTO shortly thereafter. Um, and now we bought two other businesses, one other one in LA and one in Boston. Um, and all combined together now, we're about a 100-person company. 
Uh, that's in about a year's worth uh, of, of effort, going from about a 20-person company to about a 100-person company. And we help companies make the, the move to AWS. And if they're already on AWS, we help them make the most of it. So that's, that's the quick history of me and how I, I got to it. where we I are. I love it. Um, the, the, I want to kind of stick to the, the, little, the, the growth from 20 to 100 people. Yeah. So as CTO, how has your team changed? So it's funny, uh, because we're a business that does uh, a lot of professional services and consulting, um, they're actually, a lot of the technical resources work on a different team than mine. Uh, my team sort of represents the glue um, to hold things together. And uh, we, we have platform and product is, is, is what, what I do and what my team does. And so our team kind of went from being zero when I started. It was just me, right? Um, and I pulled in a bunch of, uh, you know, kind of the smartest, best resources on the team that I could identify that would be good for a fit for what we're doing. And what, what the platform team really does is all about uh, optimizing for efficiency and finding ways to automate our business, right? So um, we kind of view mm. our, we, we manage customer infrastructure on AWS, right? And we want to do that in an efficient and effective way, make sure that everything is fully automated that uh, we have a great deal of insight and that all of our 24 by 7 engineers who work on another team um, have all the tools and the resources they mm. need to get deep insights into what's going on in a customer's you know, AWS account. So as CTO, you're building the products and, this, and the, the tools that enables your product engineers or your, your service delivery team service delivery yeah. team to do that quicker fast that's and right more efficient they're they're our number one customer right yes um is is basically the the folks who are del- the technical team that's delivering service to our end user our end customer we want them to be hyper efficient right so you know a lot of people solve in this space in the in the managed services space and in the cloud consulting space they solve problems with with what i like to call meat right people they just throw people at the problem um, we're technologists, right? We we want to solve the problems with technology whenever possible, um, and enable our smart people to handle the things the technology sometimes can't, right? Um, so if they're doing things that are are you know we have regular cadence meetings with the service delivery team, and it's like, look, when are you picking up a pencil? Which in in for a technical team that is, when are you firing up the terminal, having to run, manually run commands? Like that's you, you shouldn't be in the shell necessarily uh, to you know running the same fifty different you know tools all the time right we should automate as much of this as possible which but also it's helpful to have <sighs> things done manually until you can automate it yeah right? manual till it hurts yeah. and then when it hurts yeah. tell us about it and we'll, yeah. we'll automate it for you and so as cto are you involved in a lot of the um client facing solution engineering stuff so i i spend a lot of time working with the sales team and, um, you know, being an executive sponsor, going out on, um, you know, customer calls and trying to figure out, hey, how can we help you? And um, it is part of my job to really understand and grasp the full breadth and depth of what AWS has to offer. Um, and really, all of the hyperscale cloud my, providers. My, my, my head's dizzy every time I log into my console. Yeah, I mean, and it, it should be, right? Like, the notion that any one person or one business can be, you know, an expert on all of AWS is sort of nuts, right? But it's uh, it's it's an exciting time right now um, as a technologist because you're constantly able to, especially with AWS at your fingertips, right? You can dive in and do some really cool stuff. I'm doing a lot of AI ML kind of uh, stuff this last couple of weeks with, um, especially around uh, Im- image and video processing, um, and you know it's an using area. AWS tools. Using AWS tools, but also interestingly, a lot of times AWS what they really do is they're going out into the marketplace and finding open source 
and kind of industry standard things and um, operationalizing them and making them into services. And, and, you know, they get a lot of grief for this because especially from, you know, certain pockets of open source communities going, oh, they're taking advantage of us. And it's like, look, they contribute a lot back. And ultimately what people actually want is they want the value, right? They want they want to be able to deliver real things on top of this software. And so that's just their model, right? Uh, and it, it makes life really easy. The AIML space in particular is pretty chaotic right now because, you know, there's hundreds of different tools, right? You know, from, uh, you know, MXNet and TensorFlow and all, all these different things you have to understand. And Amazon is really trying to make it such that you don't have to be a data scientist to be able mm. to do AIML. I think that's the part that gets me most excited these days. I mean, originally with cloud, I remember with my startup, we, we, we took this huge foray into managed services mm. racks, at Rackspace. Yep. And I'll never forget those four or five exciting days of anticipation as they were sort of uh, provisioning your system oh, yeah. and you get that shell <laughs> login and you're like, oh, oh it's is- real. <laughs> <laughs> and to this day, even when it is an instance I fire up and I get to log in, I'm like, oh, this is just every time. It it's just magic. feels feels amazing. Um, so then you have this whole auto scaling and provisioning and, you know, IPs and everything that sort of all those sort of Unix networking system things that get ab- ab- abstracted. Uh, then you go into containers and, and sort of at the next level of abstraction. And then... I feel like this one where we can start leveraging, well, the data that Amazon has, the rules yeah. that they have sort of accumulated yeah. and, and, and all of that. Now I feel this is, we're back into sort of, we've come around the dark side of the moon and now we can start getting excited about what they have learned and leveraging that in our yeah. own applications. Yeah, it's, it's really true. And you know, it's funny, the oldest uh, AWS service is S3 and it is, by all accounts, most people find it pretty boring, right? Because it's storage, right? You you stick blobs of data into into a you know a bucket, and there you go, object storage. But it, as it turns out, it's actually one of the most exciting services that there is because they have now integrated it in so many different ways that if you put your data in there, you can actually use it as a data lake and do all sorts of really cool, interesting stuff um, against it, right? Um, you can run, you know, uh, kind of big data analytics uh, workloads against it. And, uh, you know, one of the the ones that I always tell to people who, you know, like me are developers, engineers who understand um, some, you know, they understand relational databases, for example. It's like, hey, look, did you know that you can put plain text files up in S3 and pay almost nothing to host them? And then you can run SQL queries against them. And and that blows people's minds. They They have no idea how that's even possible. But AWS does it. It's it's a pretty cool thing. And that is uh, services inside of the AWS family, right? It's not right. like I know there's Snowflake and... Yeah, there's lots of great ecosystem partners as well, right? Like, <laughs> you you know, it only gets even more exciting when you, when you jump outside of just the AWS core services. But even if you just stick with core AWS services, there's a lot you can do. And do you sort of as CTO and as you're managing the growth of your company's technology strategy and tools... Do you have a, uh, are you principled in the, in the sense that you are going to try and stick with AWS as far as you can, or are you sort of incorporating all these third-party services and systems? So I think the answer is yes on both, right? Um, my job as a CTO is to pick best of breed, but it's also to have a good cohesive technology strategy. And as a partner of AWS, it is our job to understand the AWS 
you know, kind of platform as well as possible. So we always give the AWS, you know, solutions a fair shake, right? And understand them deeply and and make sure that, look, if this is going to work for us, that's what we should use. But I also want to know what's out there, right? What other options are there in open source and, you know, commercial that we can um, plug and play into the ecosystem? So we ended up with a mix, right? Um, some good examples are, uh, so AWS provides cloud formation, right? Um, which is a wonderful um, kind of infrastructure as code uh, kind of platform. And we do use it, um, but we have decided to use Terraform for most of our, our work instead. And and the reason for that is because it met our needs better. But it wasn't because we just picked it without looking at CloudFormation. It's because we, we you know, kind of learned both deeply and, and made the decision on, on when to use the right tool mm. for the job. And do you, so um, I want to kind of uh, talk about that. Um, when you are so overtly pushing AWS as not pushing, but uh, as a you know managed service provider for uh, uh, AWS, how do you how do you brand that so that clients don't feel like well you're always going to be just pushing, pushing the services? Yeah, I mean to me ultimately as a as, CTO, I would say yeah. Well, whenever I go to a customer engagement, I'm more than happy to tell them about the pitfalls of certain AWS services, right? Um, they are the the market leader, no question about it. And not only in market share, but in terms of kind of breadth and depth and capability and all of that. Um, but that doesn't mean they're perfect, right? And uh, the great thing about being an AWS partner is they're they're pretty customer obsessed. That's kind of one of their values. And so, as a customer, we can and a partner, we can go to them and we can tell them, that, look, this this bit uh, of of your service could really use some improvement. Mm. And I'm more than I'm t- I can t- I will tell my customers that, right? If if there is a better solution for you, we will tell you, right? Um, so, and and it's also about picking the right service, right? Because sometimes there's about 100 different ways to solve a particular problem, even just with AWS. And so helping them not pick the one that's going to cost them the most money, that may make us the most money, right? But it's not the right solution. Mm. So, you know, we have to build that trust and credibility. And I think a big part of that is by just being completely honest and transparent about they're not perfect. Mm. But they are very receptive to your feedback, and here's a good alternative in cases where you know it's not a good fit for you. When so I I, I love on the mission website. I went to the um, resources section and I saw the spread the 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 spend the AWS spend spreadsheet. Yes, and um, I know uh, right when we sold our company, I was I I, th- I feel like I I left the stage right before this incredible boom. It was this 20, 2015. Okay, yeah. And, um, you know, I, I had redundancy in multiple clouds. Uh, well, the Rackspace cloud back then and then AWS. Um, but I, I did realize that there was this tsunami of spend calculation, yeah. cost calculation coming down. And, and, and I know as much as AWS interface tried to make the – projections sort of easy to understand it was still like this whole other side of my brain that had to start thinking and computing cycles and all that stuff remember when i said that i would point out when aws has shortcomings yeah i will routinely tell my customers look this is a space that unless you are an absolute and utter expert in how aws bills you you're going to have trouble right um figuring out where your money's going can be quite intimidating especially i mean you know, earlier we were talking about sort of the magic of spinning up a VM and like, you know, for someone who's been in technology for a long time, it's like, wow, it's so cool. I can literally, I can run a little, you know, I can push an API call and boom, I have a server within a minute. Amazing, right? 
all on the same token. So do all your developers on your team and you're getting billed for that by the minute. And it's like, wow, what, what is going on here? How, where's all my money going? Why is it going there? And, you know, AWS gives you tools to handle this, but they're not super easy to use and they take a lot of education and training. So yeah, Mission does have, um, on our website, we have like an Excel spreadsheet of all things, which you would think like, yeah, I saw it. I, you know, uh, but it's, it's actually a great tool and resource. Um, the nice thing about it is because it's a spreadsheet, it, you know, everyone's like, oh, but it's not cloud-based. Yeah, but here's the thing. When you're talking to your CFO and you want to tell them about your spend and what the calculations are going to be when you're thinking about making the move to AWS, sending them an email attachment with an Excel spreadsheet is probably the best. That's a godsend to you because <laughs> if you, love language. that's right. If you send them like, oh, I use this specialized tool and yeah, here's a, you know, they're, yeah. no, they don't want to want that. I um, <laughs> uh, recently prototyped a, uh, an app for, for, for a friend and um, it was in the... Um, real-time shopping sort of Facebook Live meets uh, Etsy meets uh, QVC. So oh, cool. sort of, a, it was a, a really cool app. And um, I decided it was time to implement Redis or some sort of memcache. And I'd never used Elastic Cache before yeah. and decided, well, great, let's just use Elastic Cache. And oh my goodness, I <laughs> I felt like an idiot and I felt, but the cost was shocking so what we did then was we uh just installed redis on an instance and we just kind of used that yeah sometimes that's like and the funny thing is aws will actually directly tell you sometimes it's like look maybe the managed service isn't the right solution for you maybe you should just install it on ec2 right we've done that for customers we have customers that uh use for example rds and elasticash they're using the managed service right um and they have enough scale where it makes sense right uh and there's other people who it's like look you know um, if you have a pretty light, if you're doing prototype or dev test, maybe it makes sense just to install it on, on the instance, right? Um, you just got to be flexible. Mm. I think that's, you know, that's never going to change, um, yeah. that, needing that flexibility. But you can, you can really get bit if you're not careful on the cost front, for sure. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, when I get that little alarm email from Amazon, I, my <laughs> heart starts racing. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, uh, you know, it's funny. One of one of my favorite features of the of the AWS ecosystem are those like notifications where you can go in and be like, hey, look, if my bill is approaching, you know, X, shoot me an email, right? Or if something is going haywire. Let me ask you two rookie questions, if I may. All right, rookie it um, up. When I choose to deploy some service from Amazon, I just feel like I'm randomly picking a region. <laughs> is there a science to the region? Yes, there is a science. Should I to the visualize regions. that there's an actual building with these machines in it? <laughs> you can if that helps you, right? <laughs> if it makes you feel better or sleep easier. But look, realistically, regions are about a couple different things. So first of all, uh, every region is priced differently. So that's something that a lot of people don't realize, right? The the you know every service that is available in a region may have a different price point than it would have in say us east or us west mm. or whatever um, and the reason for that is because power costs you know different network costs different in each different place globally right um, so cost is a factor when you're picking a region and then in addition you know there's geographic and you know the speed of light right so if you have users in europe you probably don't want to be using us east one you know exclusively um, and there's also not every service is available in every region. A lot of people don't know that either. The core services are all available in every region, but not every service is available in every region. So when you're picking a region, um, or really you should be picking multiple regions, 
Um, but you should do to do so based upon a combination of factors, right? Price, um, which services are available and do which ones do I need and where are my users? And that's it. So, and is there an easy way to see that? Yeah. You know, the, um, if you actually go on AWS's website and navigate through the, the maze, um, there is, there are a couple of pages where you can go in and see kind of, um, uh, for example, EC2 instance pricing on a per, um, region basis, um, you know, our spreadsheet actually is pretty useful for this as well. Um, there's lots of tools out there. AWS does provide some. They have uh, something called the Simple Monthly ca- or Simple Pricing Calculator, Simple Monthly Calculator, I believe. Um, and they're working on some new tools to help for cost estimation on their website. Um, so there's lots of tools out there. Visualizing it is difficult, and there are so many different levers that you can kind of, mm. um, you know, push and pull to change your price that it makes it a little bit difficult. But there are tools, and there are also partners. Yes, of course. <laughs> Can we just float the little mission uh, right. banner across the YouTube? Uh, I am wearing a t-shirt. Yeah. And I told you this morning it was unsolicited. I mean, you didn't ask me to do no, it. No, I didn't. I didn't. I was going to wear my 7CTO shirt. Which, I, you know, I probably should have worn a 7CTO I was, shirt. I mean, that would have been really cool. But it, maybe it's too early in our relationship for that. Yeah, you know. I mean, I hardly know you. Well, I have to say, this mission logo is pretty attractive. And that is quite the nice t-shirt. So. It, it, is a, it is a beautiful. I really <laughs> love the O. The dynamic O, sort of the we call it. Infinite, the dynamic O. Yeah, okay. it's cool. It's, it's, it's sort of like this melding of the relationship between us and AWS and us and our customer. What right? percentage of that logo and name was, came from you? Oh, wow. Well, was it intent... So, like, so, so, so let me just maybe ask you this, if it's okay. Yeah. Uh, the Open whole book. rebranding and branding exercise. I yeah. mean, especially for, it's one thing to do it for a startup where you're, you know, how to be awesome kind of books where you're like, okay, my vision, you know, my branding board and all yeah. that. But man, for an existing company to do that, I mean. It's a big challenge, you know, and you can spend a lot of money hiring, you know, firms that do this. And they do, look, they, by all accounts, they do a great job, right? I, we worked with one um, back when I was at DreamHost, we did a spin out called Ink Tank, um, and and we hired a uh, a firm that specializes in branding and naming. And they came up with the name and the the design and the logo and stuff. And it cost us an arm and a leg, but it was really really good. Um, but going through that process a couple of different times, um, you know, when we did Mission, we were like, you know, in this space, um, we want to get a great knock it out of the park brand, but we feel like we don't really need necessarily to go out and hire one of these firms. We actually ended up bringing in um, one of Simon's, you know, connections, um, and now he is our our CMO, right? So kind of really proved himself during the rebrand process. And um, while he was kind of consulting with us, you know, we we brought together kind of representative uh, cross section of the company. Um, and we went through a kind of a multi-week process. Um, we did it in very, very quick kind of succession um, to kind of think about, you know, what is it that we're trying to convey with the brand? Uh, and, you know, the great thing about the name Mission it is it conveys a lot of other, you know, thoughts that come into your head. Mission Control, Mission Command, right? I'm on a mission. What's your mission, right? So there's, um, we really did think about, we went through this process of like, picking out images that we felt captured what it is that we do for mm. people. And I can't remember who it was. One of our, one of the people in the, in the kind of session put up a, a photo of like a NASA mission control, right. With, you know, all those screens up and you can, you know, they're, mm. they're supporting, mm. supporting the astronauts on their mm. mission. And that's what we do for our customers, right. We're the experts. We're, we're the, um, there's, have you ever seen the movie Spider-Man homecoming? 
Yes. I know this is taking a really strange turn. Um, I'm there- loving it. <laughs> I just saw Spider-Verse. Oh, so good. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. But Spider-Man Homecoming, there's a, a scene in there where, you know, kind of Peter Parker's best friend, he's like, can I be your guy in the chair? Do you remember that scene? Oh, I do. And and we're the guy in the chair. Oh, that's what man. mission is. And so that's what we really wanted to convey to people. It's like, hey, and that's why um, if you look at the, the logo, we usually have a tagline underneath it, let's achieve yours. And that's the whole thing. Like, you know, this is new to me being at a company where the end goal is our customer's end goal, right? Mm. Um. Now, that's not to say all the other companies I haven't ha- been at haven't cared about their customers. They have, but we were producing products. And so our end, go- our end goal was the customer's end goal, but in, in building them something to, to help them achieve it. But in this case, it's a little bit different because we're really having to deeply understand all of our customers' businesses mm. and jump in and, and work with them. So all of this really went into that branding process, and it was really fun. Um, you know, when, when, the, when the name came out, we're like, can we do that? It's a pretty common word. Well, that's word. my next question, is it to pick, to pick such a common word? We had backups, um, and then we went to legal, and we're like, hey, look, go do a search. Tell us if we can do this. And, and they came back, and we're like, look, you know, it's defensible. Um, there's no one in your space who is using this, right? Mm, there's a tortilla mm, company, right? Mm. So we're not the tortilla company, right? <laughs> um, but, uh, and there's like a, a clothing business and so on. So, but in technology, there wasn't anybody. And we were like, you know, we could make up a word and, you know, hope people know what it means. Or we could pick a word that has deep meaning. Mm. And, and, it's a, it's a, it. and again, it's a, it's, a, it's a word that every single company has a mission. Yeah. So you're immediately building that connection point. Yep. The the second rookie question I had was um, around um, Google Cloud, Amazon, Azure. You know, what as a CTO? If I I, I know a lot of projects are cloud, cloud migration projects. Yep. So how do I decide which cloud to be in? It's a great question, and and even which clouds to be in. Right. Mm. So you might might have a multi cloud strategy. Uh, and and ultimately, for me, it comes down to picking the best tool for the job. It's like any other, you know, kind of exploration that a CTO will will undergo when you're picking the the, the kind of programming language and, and runtime that you're going to build your application with or multiple. Right. Which database are you going to use? Which, you know, whatever it happens to be, um, it's the same kind of exploration. And the way I like to to help people understand um kind of the hyperscale cloud providers is uh, ultimately what you're looking for is you're looking for someone who is going to provide you with um, as many shortcuts as possible to get to market, right? So if I'm a startup, that's what it's all about, time to market. How can I get to market? And um, sort of the name of the game with that, with the hyperscale providers these days are, are what they call a managed services. We do managed services as well, but it's kind of a different way, um, you know, a service where you're not getting down to the bare metal or even to the to virtual machine level, right? Um, starting to think about how can I reduce my management burden as much as possible and and get to market. So things like on on Amazon RDS, right? All of the hyperscale providers have um, kind of serverless functions as a service, whatever you want to call it, um, offerings as well. Um, managed containers, right? That's a huge. Um, aspect of it, managed databases. And so that's, I think phase one is sort of determining what your needs are from a technology perspective and like what things could a a cloud provider do for me that I won't have to do. Uh, Cost is of course a concern. um, But if you're, you know, uh, 
if time to market is your number one concern, then, you know, probably go with features and breadth. And that road will almost always lead you to AWS because they have the most of those right right now. Now, if you have specialized, you know, things, um, each hyperscale provider, everyone's like, well, let's just go do a cost by cost comparison. Mm. Right. And they think that, that it's mostly a procurement issue. Picking a cloud provider shouldn't be a procurement issue if you are, you know, building um, new things. If you are running uh, kind of legacy software, it's a procurement problem, right? I've got, you know, an SAP workload that is, you know, a huge monolithic application that I'm going to, you know, forklift up into a cloud provider. Procurement is your problem, right? <laughs> Pricing is your problem. Yes. Go figure out yeah. what's the cheapest place to do it mm. and between the big guys and do that. Um, you know, and there is, it's more complex than that, but the vast majority in my experience of our customers that's not what they're asking what they're asking for is where can i give myself a leg up when how can i make myself more agile more more capable of delivering you know to my customers more quickly um and then it gets a little bit different cuz the the cloud providers have differentiated services um so if if you know you're wanting to do ai ml for example um, there are definitely leaders in that space, but it depends on the type of AI and ML that you're trying to do, right? Um, and if you, for example, want to do, uh, you have specific like workloads that maybe Windows workloads, for example, you can definitely do it on AWS. AWS does a great job, but Microsoft, of course, is going to have some sort of advantage in that space. Um, so it, you know, to me, it's like understand the different providers and what their strengths and weaknesses are, map them to yours and then make your choice. But there's a lot of factors. Yeah, and I can imagine that your team, you know, the, the comfort levels in your team and what they're used to and what sort of what the DevOps culture is also needs to be considered. Yeah, ab- absolutely, right? Like you I've know. never, ever touched Azure before in my life. <laughs> like I, I don't even know where, I don't even know where to go. It's funny, you know, that's true. If you go out in the market and you look for, you know, team members and you're growing out your DevOps, you know, staff, that is that is a huge challenge, right? Finding people with the right experience. Now, at the same time, look, if you have, uh, a, as you know, most technologists can pick up anything. You give them the right amount of time. But again, time to market, we just talked about it. I, I do think that there's a reason that Mission focuses heavily on AWS right now. And it's because they are the unquestioned leader in the space. There's more people using AWS. There's more businesses who are interested in moving to AWS. They have the largest... Um, catalog of services. They are definitely an innovator in the space. Their price points are really great, um, and the talent pool is is good, right? Is there is? Uh, and I remember one of the arguments we had about four or five years ago, when there was this movement of bare metal versus cloud services. Um, and and again, this is more in the startup space. Is there ever a case for just firing up your own server farm and just you know, virtualizing that and just. Sure. I mean, you know, it, a lot of it does also come down to core competencies, right? Like if that's something you're great at, you know, I mean, I, I right now I would tend to say there's very rarely a case where I would encourage anyone to do that, um, you know, but it, there are certainly cases, right? So one of the canonical examples that that people cite is Dropbox, right? They're like, oh, Dropbox moved out of AWS and they saved millions of dollars. It's like, this is actually true. They did do that. Um, but here's the thing. Dropbox has a single, a very, uh, a workload that is very, very high scale in a single dimension, which is massive amounts of storage, right? They have compute for sure, right? They have network, they have other things as well going on. But fundamentally, Dropbox is a storage business and they have 
massive, massive amounts of storage. So, um, of course, they can go out and they, at the scale that they have, they can go buy hardware and provision it and manage it themselves and probably save money. You're probably not Dropbox, right? <laughs> um, so if you're, especially if you're a startup, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a couple of servers in, in a rack, you know, somewhere, maybe in your basement, tinkering around, right, for dev test, right? There's nothing wrong with that per se. Um, but fundamentally, we're talking about pretty small numbers now when you're using mm, mm. AWS for, for doing development. Um, and I don't know. There are cases, but for the most part, there are cases of extremely high scale right where that makes sense and most businesses don't have that scale especially in a single dimension that's the other yeah, factor yeah yeah do you see uh ctos sort of do you see like a flawed thinking sometimes in in when you're dealing so i'm assuming you deal a lot with ctos right yeah or, we, we you or, know i communicate a, a fair yeah. amount with CTOs. and and what are the what are some of the um flaws or maybe in their traditional thinking that you tend to have the same conversation over and over about well this is actually what it is or yeah you know you're thinking of it in terms of the early 2000s but this is what it's become like what are some of those and i particularly want to help our audience maybe sort of think through new ways of thinking about where the cloud is going and why you should be migrating and betting you know more on it so uh it's funny some several things jump directly into my head when you when you ask this question and and a lot of it comes down to the fact that as technologists as CTO you know we tend to think about things from a technology perspective right which is good but that's that's part of our job um but we also tend to try to solve problems from a technology perspective and oftentimes we'll go deeper um than we need to right so in the past um when i was building you know out companies and building out you know things i would i would start from you know the bottom up, right, and find technologies that I could use to build on top of, and uh, I would know fully in, in deep, intimate detail my entire stack. And and these days, um, there's so much competition and so much innovation and activity going on that a CTO's job is really to help deliver quickly, deliver value quickly. And if you're too obsessed with controlling every aspect of your technology stack, you can slow yourself down. And so mm. one of the big challenges I hear from people is they'll say, well, I don't want to be locked in with a cloud provider. So to me, this is a fallacy. It's a, it's a false thinking mindset because what you're, you're telling yourself is it's, you know, when I'm successful, I don't want to be locked in. It's like, cool, when you're successful, let's have that conversation. But today you're not there yet, right? This is not a problem for you. The problem for you is you have competition, you have people breathing down your neck, you need to innovate and you need to get to market more quickly. You need to deliver value to your customers. You need to be focused on your product. Mm. So one of the things I really encourage CTOs to do when they're going through an exercise of uh, thinking about how to you know, think about the cloud is start to align yourself with your product team. Now, sometimes CTOs control the product team. In my case, I do. And in the last couple of jobs I have, um, I think that's a very good idea. I love um, it. And but if you don't, sometimes it's on, you know, marketing, sometimes it's a separate, you know, it could be under the revenue officer. Sometimes it it really depends. Um, But align yourselves with them and understand the pain points that they're trying to solve for the customer. Gain empathy for your 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 customer and then think, okay, my customer does not care Mm. 
that I am really great at, you know, managing a storage cluster. They don't care. What your customer cares about is the end value you're trying to deliver to them. So if you shift your mindset and start to think top down from how can I help deliver that value to my customer, then you stop thinking so much about, well, I can eke out an extra 6% performance or maybe if I manage my own, you know, database, right? Maybe you can, or maybe you can save money. Who knows? But are you going to get to market and provide value? Mm. Redeploy all of those great people on making your product better, right? And if you do reach Dropbox scale and you're killing it and you want to save millions of dollars by building out your own infrastructure, great. Go down that boondoggle later. Don't do it now, (laughs) right? I have seen uh, I have seen the difference between CTOs who are product focused and have that voice of customer in their heads yeah. versus the ones who are, you know, technically more more purist, I would say, and sort of more, well, we're going to be classical about our approach right. around technology. Yeah, I mean, it's, and the thing is, it, people would often assume it's like, oh, it's CTOs who have been CTOs for a long time. And it, it, I haven't found that to be true necessarily, right? I found in, you know, talking to CTOs kind of a great mix, right? You'll find um, people who are relatively new and they think, oh, it's because I'm a technologist that I'm, I've got this job. And so I need to be, you know, advising that we build everything and we can do it better. And, da, 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 da. and it's like, no, no, no. Yeah, right? I totally agree with that. And, and But you will also find some people who have been doing it for a long time who just haven't broken out yet. Mm. And so do you have, uh, just, just, just to kind of close that, do you have advice for CTOs who, who find that they're struggling with their product teams and or are at loggerheads with them constantly or are unable to think that way in the executive sync up? Like, yeah. I mean, you could say go sit and shadow your customer success team. Or- yeah, I think, look, you, you should make every effort internally first, right? I think that is ultimately the best path if you can get um, build alliances out with your product team and really help them understand that your job is ultimately to build a technology strategy that will enable your customer and the product team's job is to come up with you know products that are going to enable the end customer so you have the same mission right you have the same goal and if you can convey that to them and align um, and and ultimately the the person who's going to probably have to budge more on their philosophy is probably the CTO. And that's, I think, where it's the most mm. difficult, especially for technologists. Mm. We tend to have um, flexibility does, is sometimes not our biggest strength, right? Yes. <laughs> Putting it mildly. <laughs> yeah, I was like, how can I express this? Flexibility is sometimes not our biggest strength. Right, that's a very, very, it. very uh, political way to put I it. Think, I think the challenge also is, it's a, it's a sort of a vicious cycle where you aren't viewed that way either. Right. By your fellow C-suite. Yeah. And then uh, it makes it really tough to then step into that gap and have that uh, voice. I mean, I was on a team once where I had to tell the CPO, uh, hey, don't just be talking business to the business people now. Right. I, I want to be part of these customer yep. interviews. I have to be a part of what's happening. That's right. And and for, for the CPO, it was, oh, geez, I, I didn't even contemplate that you would want to be a part of that. Yeah, there's um there's a really great group out there um, that has a whole kind of philosophy and a series of training and such. And I'll give them a little plug called Pragmatic Marketing. Um, mm, and yes. if you you may have heard of them, they've uh-huh. been around for quite some time. I've done the training myself. I've delivered, you know, I had people who work for me go through it as well. And I think getting a CTO to go to one of those things is actually quite valuable because it gives them this notion of like, look, start to think 
about what's going to really unlock the value of your business. And, and especially in, in the vast majority of businesses, it is all about building something. Yes, it has to work, right? That's what the CTO is thinking, but building the right thing, right? And, mm. and making sure it's going to make your end end user just so, absolutely happy. So true. And I love that because the, uh, I think a, a mental block for a lot of CTOs is just tell me what to build. I'll make sure it gets built. I'll yep. store, staff it. I'll make sure it happens. But I'm frustrated because no one's really giving us direction where you should say, listen, get ahead of that conversation yeah, right. and become part of that shortest path to finding and building a solution. That's absolutely right. And and if you just sit and wait for direction, you're you're going to be in trouble. So I, I'm, I've long been a believer that a product-minded CTO is the right path. I love it. For me, it's like a UX, UI person who can also code. Yeah. Yeah, that's that, right. I love it's that combination. Oh, yeah, it's good. And I think the <laughs> earliest indication that you're failing as a CTO in this space or in this situation is when you start getting bored. Yeah. I think boredom, which is, a, which is tough for creative types. I mean, I, know I fight boredom. I'm sure you do as well sometimes. You've got to keep yourself sort of Always on the move. And, uh, but if you're in a business and you're CTOing that business and you've been there for years and you're starting to feel like, well, I'm, I'm – you know, I'm a little bored. I think in some cases it's probably time to move on, but in other cases, most cases, I think it's time to think, well, how am I serving my customer and yep. what are we doing to optimize that? That's right. And I, and the thing is, if there's nothing more exciting for me personally as a technologist than, than understanding how, you know, I'm unlocking value and creating, you know, happiness and success for my, my end user, Right. I think in the very early days when I was at uh, the healthcare business, I didn't really have that connection with my end customer, mm. right? I was, it, it just wasn't there. Mm. Um, that first, you know, you know, when I did ShootCube, I spent a lot of time, you know, engaging directly with photographers and I became, you know, friends with a lot of these folks and understanding their business and really, you know, building empathy for them. And I think honestly, if I had to say in terms of my core values, my core philosophy personally, um, as a CTO, I think the number one most important value um, that a CTO can hold is empathy, mm. right? Uh, and and that's true for building engineering teams. That's true for engaging with the rest of your business and your leadership. That's true for engaging with your customer. Um, and that's that is if you if you asked a a, a group of a hundred people, kind of uh, um, family feud style, surveyed them randomly and said, name the the adjective that describes a chief technology officer. I'm guessing the empathy would not be one of the words. And you know, uh, <laughs> it's like uh, uh, the word empathy also gets thrown around like self-awareness and stuff. And empathy is actually damn hard. It's really it's hard. Re it's not like people say, oh, okay, we're working on emotional intelligence and, you know, self-awareness and uh, social awareness. And, and those words are so easy to say, but the concepts behind that are uh, putting yourself second and third and fourth behind other, right. other people and other concepts. Right. And that is not an easy thing to do, especially on a good day, it's hard. Yeah. On a bad day, it's near impossible to do because, you know, you're, you're just being. That's right. Um, we do have a few more minutes. Is that cool? Sure. Yeah. Um, I want to know who put the free BSD sticker on your refrigerator. <laughs> I'm not sure who put the free BSD sticker on the refrigerator. That's pro probably before I started in the office. Wow. But yeah, I ran free BSD for a couple of years. I ran, uh, open BSD for yeah, a couple of years yeah. as well. I was a big, so my progression was basically, um, 
Perl. It was in, in, in school, university, it was mostly Pascal. Mm. Then we moved to C, then Perl, and then PHP, and then I went into Ruby, Go, and now I'm mostly, I'm really sort of enamored with Flutter. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm loving Flutter. I haven't had a chance to really play yeah. a lot. I'm actually I've... having sort of like, wow, this, yeah. is, this is not, this could not, this is not a fad. This is real. Very cool. Um, but I, so I was, so I built, um, a long story short, I built device drivers in the Unix kernel, BSD kernel mm-hmm. for proprietary encryption cards. And so we, I was in Germany and it was, the term Machtschneller was, was literal. Like I was trying to squeeze the megabits <laughs> yeah. through the seconds. Yeah. And um, um, so I was, even though our customer was, was commercial banking and, and, and consumer banking to try and bring banking to the browser, um, I was very far removed from that, much like you in the healthcare space. Yep. When I was able to, to move to the States in 2000, I joined a biotech company as the senior Unix administrator. Nice. Wow, dude. <laughs> that was hard. Yeah, I bet. I was, I was re-rating hard drives and upgrading Solaris systems and <laughs> rebooting Exchange servers. But the one thing that I'm thankful for for that time, A, I was able to come to the States, and B, I learned that unless, unless – the software you're building, the system you're configuring, the upgrade you're doing brings a smile to a, a someone's face. Yeah. It's like, why are you doing it? Yeah. And I learned in that moment that the simplest reboot your, your mail client, as, 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 as idiotic as it may seem, when you see them like, oh, wow, you just changed my whole day. Yeah. That stuff is worth it. And it, it shouldn't be downplayed. Yep. And, and to be honest, that's the reward. The reward isn't, I did this really cool thing with technology. No, it's not because it's cool technology. It's because the technology you used did something amazing. Some of my favorite moments I've had in my life from a technologist perspective is when I've done something that on the surface is really simple. It may be a hundred line script, right? But it does something that is magical to a person right? That they go, wow, this is amazing. How did you even do this? And what I try and do is I try and shrink my, when I know I'm doing some, you know, something really sort of mundane to help someone, I try Mm. and shrink my thinking to one minute segments and just be in the moment with them and not try and think, well, this is screwing up my day or screwing up my, my whole month right now. Yeah. Uh, Can you talk about one of my one of your favorite one of your customers is one of my favorites so subatomic I, I i the funny thing is i can't talk about them um for a number of reasons um but yes uh that is a customer well but it's on your website so i know i know uh i'm actually not super closely engaged with that customer so wow. it's funny i know i would i would love to Are be they in to, la i i believe so yes yeah, I read um, when I went to uh, your resources website. I I read that whole story. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. Actually, it's a it's a great use case. Um, we've got a a bunch of awesome stories on the website um, around use cases. The the big challenge in the space that we're in is because we're helping other companies do you know achieve their goals. When we want to write a use case, sometimes you get clearance, mm-hmm. sometimes you don't. Um, and sometimes even if you do get clearance, there's certain things you can talk mm. about and certain things mm. you can't because, you know, it's, you want to be respectful of them and, Absolutely. you know, their Absolutely. business. So, yeah. So, uh, pretty impressive clients. Um, 
Uh, what I did love about the subatomic story, which is on the website, mm-hmm. uh, was how you're able to have game developers focus on building amazing games. Yes. And then you're coming in the back end and that's helping right. it scale. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, just speaking more generally on the topic of gaming, that's become kind of uh, AWS has this notion of superpowers. What's your superpower as a partner? It's kind of a, I don't know. I, I won't comment too much on on how how much I love that term, but uh, regardless, one what of is our superpower, one of our superpowers right now. So serverless is one of our superpowers. Oh. Uh, containers superpower, um, but game tech has become a really strong point for us. Um, and, uh, AWS has a, a solution called GameLift now that we've gotten to be quite good with. Um, and it's actually a really fun space. The, the whole gaming, uh, and, and when I say gaming, I don't necessarily mean like people think like the big console game type situations. Sure. But more like think about mobile gaming and, um, even like Snapchat games and, you know, uh, it's like the new era of the flash game. You remember the flash mm, games on, you know, yeah, back yeah. in the nineties and or in two thousands. Now it's like, uh, you know, Snapchat games and, and, you know, all of the different, uh, kind of popular chat mm. apps have mm. game engines now. Mm. Um, and these things can scale to like unbelievably high. They can go completely viral and you'll have hundreds of millions of people using them all simultaneously. So it's really cool, challenging stuff. Um, and it's exactly the type of thing that the cloud was meant for. Yeah, so you're basically screwed if you have a free game out there and you're a new studio and it just goes viral. So <laughs> your, your, your back-end costs, yeah. your infrastructure costs will just be... It can spiral out of control you. for sure. And, but, it, you know, sometimes though that'll be kind of a strategic thing. Like, they'll, you can kind of think of it as marketing investment, right? Um, you know, instead of allocating, uh, you know, mm. you know, a hundred grand to ad campaign, you're you, just pumping it into, yeah, infrastructure. You, you spend a hundred grand on infrastructure in a month and you're like, wow, uh, now everybody knows who we are and you've got customers and you can go in and say, Hey, cool. Next game is 99 cents. You know? <laughs> if I could, if you could point CTOs into the next two or three services from Amazon that they should go read up on or look into regardless Ooh. of industry, Ooh. is wow. there something that you kind of. That's comes to fun. mind for you? That's fun. Okay, so I want to give you, God, there's so many things that I encourage people to check out. But I think, I think the, the, one, the one that I would mention first is, is definitely kind of a hot one. Um, and to me, it sort of represents the fundamental future of how we think about computing. And this is very difficult for CTOs because we all love servers. But Lambda is, is the number one thing that I would encourage people to start learning. Um, understand architecturally how you would build an application using kind of functions and um, you know, free yourself from the notion of I need to be doing this in a traditional way. Uh, and and I'm not saying it's the end all be all for sure, but I have definitely, you know, I'm a convert. I've seen the light on it uh, in many ways. And I think um, I use lambdas all the time and there's so much you can accomplish with them. So that's that's one. Just briefly, yeah. your talk at 0111 uh, was about tracking your location serverlessly. Yes. And it was from that talk that I got up and I went back to my machine, and I created a Lambda Edge function nice. on cloud through CloudFront, CloudFront. Mm-hmm. and completely rethought. Like that was such a delicious paradigm shift for me. Yeah, uh, to go from my traditional um, API server, you know, the, the the data, to thinking, okay, well, I can think in terms of S3 static data, and then just route traffic to it through a Lambda Edge. Right. That was. It, it, it is. Uh, I definitely think if you if you learn Lambda deeply and you really put yourself into the mode of understanding it and understanding how you can drive it like it's an event driven thing, 
you know, then you start to think about architectures and, and you tinker and play. There's lots of cool stuff you can do. And it really does impact you in a, in a pretty deep way um, about how you think about how you would architect <coughs> systems and applications. The, the, the most frustrating thing for me, though, was was diving. You yeah. know, yeah. I, mean, I mean, is Lambda coding in a text area? Or is, uh, uh, that's can, a rookie question. That is a rookie question, but it's a good rookie question. So you can write code in the AWS console in the little you know IDE that they have embedded, but painful. That is not the right way to do it, generally speaking, right? So, um, but there are lots of great tools and frameworks out there. Um, you know, the one that I use um, most recently is called Zappa, um, and it's a it's a great framework. It's specific to Python, um, but it's a great way to you know. Uh, write locally and then push up and it does all of the, the you know configuration for you so it's sort of like infrastructure as code plus uh, a, f- a web framework plus a bunch of other things yeah I, I, I know that that stuff exists I just haven't gotten there because uh, I had to write my little function and then I had to deploy it to a cloud yep. front a node and it was like wow yeah and it, then it, the, the dev cycle fix it fix something Push it, wait, it's funny. I think cash. that is definitely a, a thing with AWS is they work on the primitives. They work on the little primitives. And in terms of developer experience, a lot of times you'll read their documentation. You're like, here's the step-by-step on how to do this. And you're like, but nobody would ever do this this way ever. And it's true. Yes. Nobody would. But yes. what, that's not the point. The, their point is we're going to build these primitives. You, the developers and the technologists, Go build amazing build frameworks. layers on top of that. Yeah. And so like serverless, the serverless framework, serverless.com. Um, amazing framework, right? And it it actually um, has, you know, uh, runtime support for a bunch of different programming languages and it works with all the different cloud providers that provide functions. And so this is what's going to happen is AWS is going to continue to push out these great primitives. And I remember in the early days, you talked about Ruby. You probably got into Ruby because of Rails, right? That's probably what happened. Rails was a huge success because it was a developer experience oriented thing. And AWS developer experience is not really their thing. Right. I'm not saying that they have bad developer experience necessarily, but that's not, you know, the magic of the, the what was it, the 10 minute wiki? Remember yes, that? It's Back the 10 in the day. Blog, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, that. But I can, of, I can see that parallel, absolutely. So yeah. you're saying AWS is the Ruby to all, and Rails is the frameworks yeah, that, po- exactly. that popularizes yeah, opens, the, these open source communities are building amazing, amazing things on top of the primitives. And you, so, really, you really shouldn't be thinking about what cloud provider you're using, right? Eventually. Is that uh, where we're going? Is like just to stand it to space and just make it work? See, I think no, right? Because of the issue I mentioned earlier, which is each one of these guys has a totally different strength, right? Um, and that's going to be true always. So always, I think always two to three years from now. Yeah, some I do. Sort of I, amalgamation I th- and or? just because there's going to be new services, like we're still at the tip of the iceberg here, right? It's you know, will there be aspects that you can just move around? Sure, but I think uh, I do think it's important to understand what the cloud providers do. Do you think that capitalism is going to drive these providers to constantly try and lock you into their services? Or their platforms or their infrastructures. I mean, if... Are we, is, it, is it inherently designed to do that? See, I would call it, if I were in their shoes, I would call it stickiness. Stickiness. Right? See, if everybody else, you call it stickiness, right? All it's, I think it's so funny. You talk to a, a, you know, a CTO who has an, uh, yes, an app and they're yes. like, oh, let's Very develop stickiness. We've got this stickiness, like, but I don't want to be locked yeah. into my cloud provider. It's like, well, look, you know, you can't have it, you can't have it both yeah, ways here, right? Yeah. Yes, there is, you know, differentiated services create stickiness or if you want lock in 
but look, most mm. of the time, no, I hear you. Yeah, I it's, hear it's you. not your issue. It's not your problem. What is <laughs> what is another two one or two AWS services that you feel CTOs? It's coming over. It's coming down the hill. It's brand new, maybe. Yeah. You might think it's nothing now, but you know you see this coming down with a you know force. So I'll talk about a collection of services, and that is so we talked about machine learning. Mm. Um, machine learning is an extremely complex discipline that came out of academia, and so it's unlike most other um, kind of categories of service um, or of technology that you can go on AWS and get right because it's not one thing; it's a thousand things that are all glued together. So I think the interesting thing is if you want to be able to take advantage of machine learning, the uh, AWS has a series of services that are based upon machine learning that give you the capabilities and the benefits of machine learning without having to be a TensorFlow expert, for example, or you know an Apache MXNet mm. or whatever it is. Mm. You don't have to build models. You don't have to do any of that. Um, you can if you want to, right, um, which I would encourage people to understand that, but um, there's a category of services, uh, for example, one of the ones that I'm really intrigued by is called uh, Recommend, that they just announced at the last reInvent um, in November. And <coughs> Recommend uh, is essentially a, uh, AI ba- or a machine learning-based recommendation engine. So you um, can feed it uh, data and say, okay, for example, um, let's say I have an e-commerce um, web, web application that I've built, uh, and... I want to get the same kind of great recommendations that Amazon gives their customers to my customers. Well, you can do that with recommend by um, feeding it in. Here are things that this person has purchased or here are things Mm. that they have liked or added to their wish list or whatever. And here's things that they have viewed and so on and so forth. And then you've got your whole rest of your product product catalog and it'll give you, you know, lists of recommendations based on levels of confidence and so on. Um, So that's a really cool one. Um, And there's a lot of services like that that they have. Um, you know, they've got everything from, you know, recognition and, you know, image processing, video processing, um, some of the elemental services. So a lot of these things have AI and machine learning built in. And I think that's a great way to get started because you can start unlocking the value, be pragmatic about it. Um, and then maybe the, the, the last one that I'll talk about, um, it's probably, uh, I think people, you know, think that, uh, some of the the kind of glue services are are not very interesting, um, but it turns out they actually are quite interesting. So uh, the API gateway is a, is a, a really great um, service to understand. And if you're using lambdas, you know, being able to trigger them through the API gateway is is pretty awesome. And being able to do things like build REST web services out of lambdas, pretty cool. Mm. So API gateway is one that I would encourage people to understand. Um, it allows you to do a lot of really interesting things. Um, Athena is really cool. Being able to actually run SQL queries against mm, your right. S3 da- um, data, pretty cool. Yeah, I only first time I heard of that was at that conference. It's like, wow, yeah, this is neat. prolific. Um, there's a, there's just, there's so much cool stuff. So uh, before I let you go, I do want to ask you about your, your. So first of all, I uh, when CTOs brand themselves, or they they <laughs> don't brand themselves, yeah. Um, they don't go and speak. They don't really maintain a, a healthy. I mean, to some, it's just basically updating their LinkedIn profiles. Right. When I look at your website, I just see this just unbridled enthusiasm and joy of sort of uh, trying out new things, uh, building things. And, I, and honestly, I would encourage people to go to cleverdevil.io. Yeah. And I spent some time on it, and I was just I found like it was so just 
Yeah. You know, and, and if I, so just um, as, a, as a thought exercise, if, if I were considering a technical co-founder or a, C, a CTO, I mean, and I look at your website, I'll be like, holy moly's. Yeah. This is the kind of person who is, who is actively, and it doesn't seem like you're doing it for any other reason than pure enjoyment. It is. It's, it is pure enjoyment, right? And I think to me, it's all about, like, if you look at how most people experience technology these days, it's through social media. Right. That's how they experience technology. And that's sort of uh, sort of great and also sort of a shame, because at the end of the day, they're they're kind of giving that experience away to somebody else. And I'm a big believer in like owning your own information and, and um, kind of owning that experience, especially as a technologist. And so, yeah, I have a website. Um, I'm one of the few. It's a blog. Right. But it's, it's more than that. Uh, it's a repository of data. So I send my my location tracking information up into there. Um, I have all of my history of what I've been watching from a TV and movie perspective. I've got what I, podcasts I've been listening to. I've got locations that I've checked into. I've got recipes. I've got and, everything on and, there. And, and and the one question you ask, the one question you answer on the side, Lord, why is tracking important? Yeah, is basically this concept of preserving your memories. Yeah. I think that's digital preservation, right? Like I think one of the biggest hooks that Facebook has into people is that, right? They own people's memories. And I loved the whole thing where it would be, hey, remember this one year ago? Remember this five years ago? And I was like, gosh, I want that, but I really don't want to give it to Facebook. Mm. Like, you know, I'm I'm uh I'm not a huge fan of theirs. Uh, I think they have been fairly damaging. Um and so I've deleted my Facebook account and encouraged many other people to do the same. But that doesn't mean you have to give up that experience, right? So, you know, I have, uh, I've built a bunch of things into my website for, I have like a monthly summary feature I just added mm. where I can go in and say, hey, what, what did my month look like in January of 2017? Yeah. And I can see all the photos that I posted. I looked at January 2018. Yeah. Yeah. And there's lots of cool stuff. And, and it really, it does make you remember. And, you know, I have two kids um, and I want to cherish the memories I have and with the them. the purpose of putting it on the web though? Well, versus so, just keeping a little private repository or I want to be able to access it from anywhere. I mm. want to be able to aggregate information from anywhere. And just because it's on the web doesn't necessarily mean it's public. So when I look at my summary pages, I see a lot more than you see. Mm. Right? So when you're um, logged in and That's all, right. Okay. And and you can, you know, different people can make different choices there. I'm comfortable sharing photos publicly, right? Um I also keep journals, personal mm. private journals. So mm. I write them on my iPhone. I've written a little thing that I can you know, take journals and mark down and I tap a button and it publishes to my website privately. In a Are you hosting category. it on your own hard drive? Uh, yeah, I actually host it all on a Raspberry Pi that <laughs> is battery powered, runs in my pocket. No, it's, uh, it's all up in AWS. Uh, shocker of all shocker. Um, S3 for a data lake and RDS for my, my, uh, my database. No, it's inspirational, I think, both from allowing yourself to tinker with tools in a productive way, i.e. preserving memories. Yeah. Uh, while also branding who you are and what you love, right, and keeping it all inside of this, you know, domain that that you quasi own. Yeah, that's right. Uh, just to wrap up, um, IndieWeb. Yes. What is that? So IndieWeb is a community, IndieWeb.org, um, that is really where I was mostly inspired about this. I've had a website for a long, long time, but it had really stagnated. I've actually had multiple different websites under different domains. And um, IndieWeb is a group um, that really values this notion of owning your own data and controlling it. It's sort of a reaction to the social media kind of silo um, uh, kind of activity that's happened. And, 
if you actually look at the diversity of the internet of the web um, over the past 10 years, it's actually sort of decreased um, because now um, there are, there's more traffic than ever, but it's going to fewer and fewer mm, locations, mm. right? It's going to mostly Facebook, Twitter, mm. Google, whatever. Um, and this is sort of a notion of, of not necessarily bringing back the old blog kind of universe, but at the same time, it's more like shifting your focus and your mindset to one where it's not that these things are necessarily bad or evil. They don't have to be. I mean, sometimes the companies are, right? Um, but it's about what if they go away? How many times have you seen, mm. do you remember MySpace was enormous, right? And if you had a whole big amount of memories on MySpace and now it's gone, right? Tumblr is sort of uh, a thing that people, you know, used to do a lot of. Flickr has changed hands nine times now. And for all of those that have, you know, kind of um, risen and fallen, there's been a bunch that have just completely disappeared and all of that content is gone forever. Um, and that's sort of sad. Um, so IndieWeb is is a, a community of uh, like-minded people who want to, um, you know, either uh, reap the benefits of uh, technologies that will allow them to own their own data and own their own information or are actually builders like myself who are creating standards and uh, tools that um, enable people to do that. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I, I love the idea of putting out your web presence and having the masses come to you. Yeah. But the human, the, the homo sapiens seems to want to centralize. Like yeah. every, all beauty starts with the decentralization. Right. Right. And everyone's so youthful and innocently joyful about what this can do. I know. And then there's this, this, this entropy towards a freaking central... Convenience. Yeah. It is. It's about convenience. But here's the thing. It doesn't have... You can have both, right? You can have a centralized index of a decentralized system. And to me, that is mm. what that is what the web should be, right? We should each have our own presence that is ours and we control it firm believer in and that. it should be connected into a bunch of centralized indexes for different reasons. But right? then I would have to teach my mom who's a prolific Facebook user yeah. how to manage her own website. Well, in the, in the indie web community, we have this thing called generations, right? So there's generation one, generation two, generation three, generation four. Generation one is like the builders, right? Um, the people who are writing the code that and building the standards and prototyping out what is necessary to be able to have your own web presence that gives you lots of these capabilities. Generation three, generation four is like your mom, right? I, you know, she just wants to sign up for a service and use it. And you can build services that are respectful of these indie web principles and respectful of people's privacy and encourage them to own their data. Um, one of the best examples of this is um, a, a service called micro.blog that you may have heard of. It's actually created by a guy named Manton Reese. He, you know, was pretty well known in like the Apple iOS kind of Mac development, iOS development land. Um, and he's built out a blog and hosting service um, that is centralized, but is built on some of the same indie web principles and lets you uh, own your own data. Um, it lets you federate and uh, with like ActivityPub and Mastodon and all that. Um, it lets you uh, reply to my website and I'll actually see your reply on my site and I can reply to you and it, it integrates really well. So it's that centralized, decentralized kind of thing. Um, and other ones of these are going to pop over time. Um, there are ways to do it to create these generation three, generation four tools that enable, you know, your average person to get the benefits. Mm. Um, so if I'm philosophically drawn to that, IndieWeb isn't just a sort of a set of principles. You're actually building tools and yeah. enabling generation right. three and four. To That's actually the, the ultimate goal. It's not, you know, going back to being a technologist, it's not just to uh, do something cool because it's cool. Ultimately, we want, we want the whole world to have access to mm, this stuff. That sounds like something that I definitely 
It's awesome. It's a great community. Uh, IRC channel for our channels that you can join or Slack bridge. I, I joined through Slack because I have to have Slack running anyway. And if I'm going to give up a half my memory on my, my laptop, <laughs> I might as well um, consolidate all That's of my amazing. chat in one place. Um, so, but yeah, it, very welcoming community. Um, definitely recommend getting engaged if you're a CTO and you have the idea that you want to have a web presence. This was wonderful. Yeah, it's fun. Can I take the FreeBSD sticker? Or? <laughs> if you can scrape it off the fridge, it's all yours. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. It was yeah. really fantastic. Pleasure. And uh, hopefully to talk to you soon again. Yeah, thanks okay. so much. Cheers, right. man. Cheers. Have you chatted with the CTO lately? Hi, thank you for listening to the CTO Studio. If you don't mind, take a quick second and please rate and review the show. It helps us a lot. Go to thectostudio.com for more information on what we're doing at 7CTOs. We also have a video or two for you that could be a helpful resource for you as you're managing your company. So thank you for listening.